AL2 listeners, you can find audio from this series and other series alongside study guides and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions following this podcast, you can email feedback at l2today.com. Proverbs 4, 20 through 24. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. John 12, 24 through 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Welcome to church this morning. Uh, Obviously, we're continuing our series on the meaning of work. Um, both this week and next week, we are going to be focusing on, I know last sermon, I told you that that was my favorite one. I lied. This is good. These are going to be my favorite ones. Um, I might find one after that too, but right now, I think these are going to be my two favorite ones. Um, so both, this is part one, next week's going to be part two. Um, throughout this series, what we're trying to do is just take a step back and try to answer the questions about why as Christians, or as those that believe in real meaning in real life, why so many of us continue to engage in work that is like soul deadening. It doesn't have any of the motivational characteristics that actually make us long for Monday, that make us want to get up out of bed, make us want to go to engage our work. And even more importantly, how is it that we allow so many people that we know and love, our closest friends and family, to engage in work that is soul-deadening? There's no motivational component to it at all. I think those are questions for sure that require some sort of contemplation to be able to answer. Um, the, the manner, the, the approach to this study is a little bit different for those of you that are familiar with our teaching here at L2, um, because we're not trying to go directly to the Bible to say, okay, what is God saying about work? That's important. I I don't mean to diminish that in the least. But what we've tried to do is adapt an approach to this study that would be much like you coming in saying, I don't know what to do. I read these studies. I read. For years, I've been just engaged in a career that is just draining my lifeblood, and I don't know what to do. It happens a lot, but oftentimes Christians can go and look at scripture and it's like it doesn't it, the penny doesn't drop it doesn't fall all into place and so what we're doing is throughout this study looking at what social science is discovering about our mindsets today and how we interact with work and then going to the scripture much like I would in counseling and to say okay let's look at what Christianity and the Bible in particular speaks has to say about these components. And so when you come to this issue of happiness, social science is beginning to say it's it's really a paradox. And the reason that it's so elusive to many of you, and many of us for decades have sought it, and strangely, we can go to another country. When I go to Africa, for instance, I can deal with people that have next to nothing compared to us. 
and yet they are more content and they have a, a greater sense of happiness and joy day to day than many of us have ever experienced. Why is that? How could that be? And this is what social science is beginning to see. And over the next two weeks, we're going to be kind of looking at what they're beginning to discover about how our brains work and why we don't find the contentment we're looking at. And even more importantly, why many things just drain any sense of pleasure or satisfaction completely entirely out of, out of our lives. Um, today, I'm hoping to do two things. First, I hope to be able to show you how these principles apply to the sense of happiness that you have or don't have presently from your work. And secondly, I want to show you something both this week and next week that I think is truly remarkable, that where social science is putting our culture and where it's leading our culture now, what these discoveries are saying, they're taking you to a place that as a Christian you should already be. Let me say that a different way. As our culture changes, it's going to begin to discover more and more of what we hold dearly as Christians. And the, starting today with this paradox of happiness, I hope to show you that there's something in this that is both off-putting to people who are not Christians, but it's remarkably endearing to those of us that are. And it explains it to some degree. Now, to be able to do those two things, I'm going to look initially at the paradox of the Christian life from the verses we looked at in John 12. Secondly, we're going to look at the science of happiness, what they're discovering today. And then lastly, we're going to look at just a sample of the Bible's instruction about happiness and what it's saying. And hopefully, just that small little cross-section of this information is going to inspire you and hopefully get you to come back next week. So, anyway, let's go ahead and get started. This, the paradox of the Christian life, I think, is stated as clearly as any place in the Bible out of these, this recorded saying of Jesus in his public ministry out of John's Gospel, chapter 12, and particularly verses 24 and 25. And what's interesting about this and why I call it a paradox is because it pushes you to the brink of a decision. You can't read it, whether you're a Christian or not. You can't read the statements that were recorded of Jesus, irrespective of what you believe about him being God or not. But you can't read them without feeling pushed almost to the brink of a change. You have to decide whether you're going to hold on to the life that you have as you know it or turn loose of it and gain something entirely different than you've ever known. And it's like many other places in the Bible that, that oftentimes, I, I recently had a counseling session with a young man, and I told him, don't you think God ever says to you just simply fish or cup bait? He either pushes you in or pushes you out. Yeah, I can think of verses in the end of Joshua when he says, you need to choose who you're going to serve today. Or Elijah in 1 Kings 18.21 when he says, if Baal is God, then serve him. How long are you going to hesitate between these two opinions? If Baal's God, then serve him. If the Lord's God, then serve him. The rich young ruler with Jesus, he, he says, go away and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And he goes away sad. And so it's not as if Christianity and both major and minor prophets, including Jesus in the Bible, don't push us to this place. But these verses do it in a, just a radical way, I think. 
Now, verse 4, 24 is simple enough because it conveys just a basic or elementary principle of horticulture that if you have a seed, it's going to do nothing if you hold it in the palm of your hand, if you keep it in your cupboard. There's something that comes from you denying the impulse to consume it now out of the hope of putting it into the ground and yielding some organism that would come up and produce 30, 60, 100 fold of what you put into the ground. That's a basic principle. Everybody gets that. Even those of us in a uh, high technology age past the Industrial Revolution, we don't have to be agrarian to understand that principle. And so he starts with a very simple principle, but then he cuts to the chase in verse 25, and the main thrust of the text comes when he says, go ahead and hang on to your life. If you do, you'll lose it. That's an amazing, that's a remarkable statement. Go ahead and try to hang on to it. Go ahead and take yourself so importantly and think of yourself so, take yourself so seriously that you think you're something special and try to hold on to what you have and it's going to be like water slipping through your fingers. You'll never be able to hang on to it. And then he reaches kind of a tipping point when he, when he contrasts it and he says it's the person that hates her life or his life that will actually find it. Now, how does a person hate his life? Kind of an interesting concept. Now, the term itself was used in, in Greek, in the original language, in the first century, when it was used in regard to following a mentor or a coach or a teacher. It meant to have single-minded loyalty. It referred to a deep sense of loving everything else less and putting it in an inferior position to what it is you were gaining. In other words, it puts you at this very crossroads of this very text. It puts you at a juncture that you said, do I really believe this? And therefore, I've enshrined it as the most important thing in my life, or I don't. I personally think that, I've told you this many times, I was trapped in a form of Christianity that didn't do anything for me. For years, I was trapped. And I kept thinking of my faith in such a way that was completely inconsistent with Scripture. And in every sense of the word, God saved me from Christianity. He saved me from my understanding of it. And it was this that got me there. Because it was almost like you have to be brave enough and you have to have the courage to say, is this really working? Or is this something that I'm just hoping in my hope? Uh, oftentimes, I've shared the example of when I said I, I had a friend that was, became the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, 40, 45,000 churches, I think. And I remember sitting across the lunch table with him, and I told him, I, I said, Tom, I can't do this anymore. And he says, what do you mean? I said, my faith is not working. And he says, well, you have to have more faith. I said, wait a minute, I don't understand that. How can I have faith in a faith that isn't working? That's like hoping in hope. And he says, that's the answer. And I said, that doesn't work for me. And it never did. And I started having questions that no one could answer. And I had to go to seminary, not because, because I thought I was the sharpest tool in the shed. I went to seminary because I was looking for answers to questions that nobody had the answers to. And that's why I really enjoy speaking with people that doubt because we have to work through those. And what Jesus is doing here is just pushing you right to like the edge of this stage. Either step into it or just get away from it. Some of you need to have 
friends and loved ones that have the courage to simply tell you you're playing a game with this thing you call faith. Now, what's interesting about these verses is that it forces you to say, as I, as I kind of coined it or phrased it earlier, to say, am I going to hang on to what I have? Or am I willing to risk it to have something I've never known before? You see, those, those statements are so radically countercultural today that we, we, we just hardly can comprehend them, I believe. In essence, he's simply saying that every impulse you've ever known has lied to you. In other words, you've been seeking the right thing. There's nothing wrong with your seeker in that regard. You've been able to lay hold of things and perceive things and form expectations from things, but the way you've sought them is completely different than reality. That is an amazing statement that only God himself could make. That every impulse that you've ever known towards your own personal gratification has misled you. And you're going to have to think completely differently. That is a radical statement. And so there's a paradox. Because you have to admit, Jesus is not saying, look, life just sucks, don't even try to be happy. Some of you as Christians think that that's what it is, that Christianity is kind of like light beer. If it tastes good, you need to spit it out. And it's not like that. Either it brings life or it brings death. And he says something here that is remarkable because he is saying you need to pursue happiness, but it's going to be completely different than on your own terms. It's going to be completely different than whatever you've thought it is. And every impulse has misled you from the beginning. So there's a paradox in the Christian life. Make no mistake about it. The second part of this that I want to have you consider this morning is the science of happiness. The science of happiness. Now, over the last several years, there's been a remarkable spike in depression, cutting, suicide. Our counseling center, just, just in December of last year, we engaged so many cases of young people hanging themselves, young people cutting themselves, young people just having no hope in life. And it's like, how can you do that? You're 15 years old. You're an attractive young woman. And you're cutting, your, you're mutilating yourself. How can you do that? And there's something that social science is, is, is actually starting to wake up. There's a lot of cutting-edge research scientists and professors that are beginning to say, you know, we missed it. In our pursuit of psychology all these years, all we were trying to do is make people less miserable. We never even asked the question, what makes them happy? And now there's an emergence of a whole different direction in psychology and social science called positive psychology that's saying, okay, what is it that we can learn about what makes people happy, not just what makes them less miserable? The reason that many of you have never gone to counseling is that you've never been miserable enough. And it doesn't typically work. And so there's something about this that I think is remarkably refreshing. Over the last several years, advancements in neuroscience have enabled us to recognize and to realize that your prefrontal cortex is like a flight simulator. It allows you to experience things without experiencing them. Just like, just like a pilot can go into a simulator and experience events and circumstances without actually flying, your frontal cortex does exactly the same thing. 
It allows you to simulate experiences without experiencing them. Now, Harvard professor Dan Gilbert uses this illustration to demonstrate just how often your frontal cortex does this. He uses this, this illustration to demonstrate how common it is. He said, Ben and Jerry's ice cream will never, never have liver and onion ice cream. And it's not because there was a whole bunch of people that just made a batch up and then they sat around and tasted it. It's like, yuck. He says, your prefrontal cortex can do that and you can say yuck without even looking at the label. So it happens. Now, another very interesting example or illustration that he uses is, is, is really strange but true. And he asked this question, if your experience simulator was to predict the happiness levels of two of these two people, which one do you think will be happier after a year? Someone who won the lottery or someone who became a paraplegic? Now, some, I know some of you are thinking, really? Really? We're talking about a person that finally wins all of those things that I've tried to win, all, those scratch, all the scratching, all of the different things that I've tried to do all those years, and somebody finally wins, and you're comparing it to a paraplegic. But this is where your simulator is wrong. Because there's, there's data on both of these groups. And it indicates that the person who lost the use of his legs and the person that won the lotto have the same exact amount of happiness after a year. How can that be? What is it about our sense of value? What is it about our sense of reality that can be so skewed or so misleading? You see, this is what is so intriguing to me because I think this deeply affects your work. I think it deeply affects your career. Now, I have met many people in the medical industry that have admitted to me that their sense of medicine, the calling that they had to medicine, was so great that no sooner did they begin to study it and engage in it, that it bankrupted their meaning. It was a business. It didn't have very much to do with making people better. And so we become disillusioned and something happens to our happiness, it's just compromised. Now, this ability that Gilbert, that they've begun to discover to simulate experience, has also enabled social scientists to recognize that we tend to predict some situations to be worse than they actually are and some situations to be better than they actually are. Sound familiar? The Bible calls this idolatry. It says you can look at something and you can so miss its true meaning, you can so miss its true essence that you think it can make you happier than it will ever make you happy, be able to. And consequently, you can consider and contemplate and simulate some experiences and begin to think the outcome of that experience would be hell. And it's not. Now, because of that discovery, they've begun to develop a, a, an idea of happiness that is twofold. There is a happiness that's called natural happiness, and then there's a happiness that's called synthetic happiness. And all of you have that. Now, Dan Gilbert defines them, those two things, this way. Natural happiness is what we get when we get what we wanted. And synthetic happiness is what we make when we don't get what we wanted. Now, this is showing that natural happiness, you can't have natural happiness without external circumstance. In other words, it only takes place when you anticipate something and it comes to pass. 
You form expectations, and then those expectations are met. That's natural happiness. But synthetic happiness is something entirely different because it's something that emerges in our minds. Now, Gilbert's the one that caused the, actually coined this and said that he calls this a psychological immune system. It keeps you from despairing when you don't get what you want. And so synthetic happiness is something that emerges in our minds when it doesn't turn out the way we want it. And so it, it, it's radically different forms of happiness. Like I said, Gilbert caused this psychological immune system as it enables us to synthesize or create happiness even when things don't turn out the way we want it. Now, let, let's kind of set some obvious markers out here. There's some of you in this room that are capable of creating and possessing more happiness than the rest of us. I'm probably on the low end of the scale. I, I, I've become increasingly cynical and pessimistic about things over the years. Many of you have. Probably you older people are like that. And some of you old, some of you uh, young, naive people are really optimistic. <laughs> now, it kind of comes out of the pudding. I think it, it comes out in the wash sooner or later. But my point is that some of you are capable of creating and sustaining some more happiness than some of the rest of us, right? That's just kind of self-evident and obvious, I think. But there are some situations that allow any of us to do, to create synthetic happiness more effectively than we normally do. Now, this is what Gilbert said about this, and this, this is a startling quote, so listen, pay attention to it. It turns out, it turns out that freedom, the ability to make up your mind and change your mind is the friend of natural happiness. Well, why would that be? See, the ability to choose and the ability to make up your mind causes you to think and engage in something, and because of it, it's the natural forerunner of natural happiness. It's going to happen. When things do happen according to that, it sinks up because you've already thought about it. So it's, 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 it's a friend of natural happiness because it allows you to choose among all those delicious futures and find the ones that you would enjoy the most. But freedom to choose to change and make up your mind is the enemy of synthetic happiness. Freedom is not always our friend. Now, I think this speaks deeply to some of the experiences that I shared with you earlier when I go to Kenya. There's people that are happy and they, they literally sleep on flattened milk cartons because the, corpions and the, the scorpions and the snakes can't bite or sting them from underneath. They, they, they sleep in wood huts with fires in them that if they catch on fire, they all are incinerated. And they don't have smoke detectors. They don't have fire departments to come and put them out. But they're happy. There's a deep sense of commitment and a deep sense of satisfaction and contentment and joy that has eluded, quite honestly, many of you. And I think that this speaks to it, that sometimes you would be happier with far less choice, far less freedom. Now, this is the very thing that caused Barry Schwartz. He's professor of social theory and social action at Swarthmore College. He, he, it, it caused him to challenge the ethos, the whole premise undergirding Western culture. And this is what he said. He said, the official dogma of all Western industrial societies runs like this. If we are interested in maximizing the welfare of our citizens, the way to do to do that is to maximize individual freedom. 
The reason for this is both that freedom is in and of itself good, valuable, worthwhile, essential to being human, and because if people have freedom, then each of us can act on our own to do the things that will maximize our welfare, welfare, and no one has to decide on our behalf. The way to maximize freedom is to maximize choice. The more choice people have, the more freedom they have. And the more freedom they have, the more welfare they have. This, I think, is so deeply embedded in the water supply that it wouldn't occur to anyone to question this. Now, let me again qualify this a little bit. I'm not saying we should forfeit our freedom. I'm just saying maybe we don't understand our freedom the way we think we do. And so he makes the statement that he thinks that this is fundamentally flawed, that I can make you happier by giving you more choices. I can make you happier by offering you five jobs instead of one job that you have to take out of necessity. It's simply not true. Now, according to Schwartz, the proliferation of choices that we, and options that we have in our society or freedom to choose has led to three major problems that actually diminish our happiness. The first is paralysis at the con as the consequence of too many choices. You can go to, to any local grocery store and you will find a hundred salad dressings, right? And that doesn't even begin to speak, this is one of the examples that Schwartz uses, is that that doesn't even begin to contemplate where you could just get olive oil and balsamic and create whatever type of salad dressing that would please you better. He said that is a paralyzing amount of choice. The cereal aisles are amazing to me. I don't even eat cereal anymore. But our, our culture is bombarded by freedom of choice. Now, these, are the, these three things, this first one is the paralysis as a consequence of too many choices, is that you know that they're not all equal you know that there's a good choice in the mix and there's bad choices in the mix. And sometimes some of you just get paralyzed by the fear of making a bad choice. Or the next point is what economists call opportunity cost. This is the flip side of this, is that when there's a lot of alternatives to consider, it's easy to imagine the attractive features of alternatives that you rejected. And so now, no sooner do you, boy, this is kind of a form of buyer's remorse. It's, it, remorse. it's not the same thing as previous generations knew, but it's a, a real sophisticated sense of buyer's remorse that you get home, and no sooner are you home, that you begin to contemplate all the features you didn't choose in the other phone or uh, uh, features in the other pair of jeans or whatever it was, and now you're thinking, maybe it would have been better off if I'd made that choice. And it's undermining already your choice. And it doesn't have anything to do with the quality of the product that you actually chose. It just has everything to do with what's going on in your head. And so you're paralyzed by the number of options or there's an opportunity cost that creeps in that begins to undermine and corrupt your choice. And the last thing I think is the most important one. He calls it the escalation of expectations. Now Schwartz goes into this long, drawn-out explanation about buying a pair of jeans. And I'm not going to do that because I think for most of us, most of us, it happens to us with technology. Several years ago, when cell phones first came out, 
I know that's before some of you can remember. Um, you know, we used to have those, you, you didn't own a phone, you just rented your phone. And they never broke, they came in a couple of different colors, and you could have extension cords on them and stuff, and they always worked, but they were never your own. Then they came out with cell phones, and I promised myself I was never going to get one. That's how foolish I was. And so after a couple of years, I finally relented because everybody was complaining, and I bought this wooden one that had a flip top, right? They don't, obviously, they don't make these anymore. I still have, I almost brought it to show you, but you would laugh even more. But then Apple came out with the iPhone, and it changed everything. It changed everything. And that, that's obviously the one that I carry now. I've got a watch and all of that. But when the Apple phone came out, the options were astounding. The sizes, the colors, the amount of memory, all those different features built in, the accessories, the cases, the, the different headphones you could use, whether they're wired or wireless, that doesn't even begin to speak to the just the countless different combinations of apps and things you can get on the phone. I mean, it is radically different. So much so that if you went into a, an Apple store today and said, I want one of those simple flip-top phones, they would laugh at you because they don't even make those anymore. But in, somewhere in the process, we got better and worse at the same time. And Schwartz does a remarkable job of uncovering why this happened because he calls it this es escalation of expectation because what we're doing is we work through all of those options and they're asking, you know, I, I want the black one, I don't want the gold one, you know, I, I want the smaller one, I don't want this mini tablet that won't fit my pocket. You guys know who you are. Um, <laughs> yeah, and just going through all that, what are you doing? You are creating your perfect phone. By going through all of those options, it's you. You're, you're able to express you. And what that did is make your expectations perfection. And guess what? You know there's no su such thing. We all do. And so as good as it gets now is for things to turn out the way you expected them, which in the very same step took away your opportunity to ever be pleasantly surprised. That makes sense. We can't be surprised anymore because we deliberate so much. So all we can be is disappointed. And this has become an unbelievable compromise, a diminishment of our ability to experience true happiness. This is remarkable to me. It really, it truly is. Before we had so many options, we had the opportunity, and it happened often for me, we had the opportunity to be pleasantly surprised with someone, something, some service, but not anymore. I'll close this section with a quote, another quote from Schwartz. He said, nowadays, the world we live in, we affluent, industrialized citizens with perfection, the expectation. The best you can ever hope for is that stuff is as good as you expect it to be. You will never be pleasantly surprised because your expectations, my expectations, have gone through the roof. The secret to happiness is low expectations. Sounds kind of cynical, doesn't it? That you actually could teach yourself to be more happy if you didn't demand so much. This 
is a big problem for me. If you're more inclined on a visionary scale, you always look at things to try to figure out how they could be a little bit better than they are. And our ability to be pleasantly surprised, like a bird flew away a long time ago. That's the science of happiness. We'll talk a little bit more about it next week. Now, in these last few moments, I, I want to give you just one small example of biblical instruction about happiness. This obviously doesn't even remotely begin to scratch the surface of what Christianity has to say about true happiness, but I think it gives you a remarkable sample of it. We have to ask ourselves, I think, in a situation like this, okay, how can I improve the amount of happiness that I know, the quality of it, the quantity of it? How can I be one of those people that is truly happy? If you're not asking your, yourself that question, I think, I think there's a problem in and of itself. But if we ask that question, I, I, I think it forces us to a point to say, how can Christianity be a factor in a greater amount of happiness? This is what I hope to be able to show you, that where Christianity is saying you should be and how you should be viewing the world is already where science is beginning to direct our culture. It's already there. In short, the most sub... I just want to give you this in a real concise statement. The most substantive and lasting happiness that we can experience comes from a very strange voluntary loss of freedom. The most sustainable, the most satisfying happiness we will ever know comes from this weird time in which we voluntarily give up our freedom. Think about it. If you're getting married, the best marriages come. Tim Keller said a simple statement that takes the whole meaning of marriage into a single statement. He said, if both of you are willing to admit that the greatest threat is your own selfishness to your marriage, you have a chance of being happy. That sounds really cynical, but it's so true. Because happy marriages come from a voluntary loss of freedom. Think about it. Who are the best parents that you've ever known? They gave up their lives They pushed a baby that they've never met into the world, and they suddenly became slaves. Those of you that are having babies, listen. Listen. <laughs> Your right to sleep is forfeited, and there's no contract. Your right to go and just go on a jog or go on a run without some weird paraphernalia that you're pushing in front of you, gone. <laughs> gone. Your ability to eat a whole dinner without stuff splashed on you, gone. But it is possibly the most fulfilling and gratifying thing that you will ever know, to voluntarily give up yourself for someone else. Voluntary loss of freedom. Now, these verses taken from Proverbs 4 are spectacularly interesting to me because Solomon first penned them around 930 B.C., and they speak to much of what science is discovering today. And they get, he cuts right at it. This is what they call an inclusio. And you can put those verses up. There you go. Um, it's, the heart of the text is in the middle verses. And the surrounding verses are just kind of supporting it. And so the heart of the verse is when he says, these are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. 
Now, you, we have to take a moment to step back and, and to consider how Hebrew, the Hebrew culture looked at life. Shalom, the pursuit of shalom to the Jew was not an absence of conflict. That was part of it, but that was only a small part of it. True life emerged when there was a presence of positive things, not just the absence of negative things. And so he is saying, this is the whole angelata. What I'm telling you here is the very, it cuts to the nerve of our humanity. This is what we want. This is what we long for. This is what we dream about. He said, this is it's right here. And then the basic exhortation comes out of verse, verse uh, 23 when he says, you're going to have to guard your heart. There's some process that you're going to have to learn how not to be undiscerning and just gullible to buy into every little thing that comes along because your heart determines who you are. As a man thinks in his heart, he would write later, so is he. Jesus would say, you can't produce, a good tree can't produce bad fruit any more than a bad tree can produce good fruit. Everything you are emerges from your heart. And so he said two things. This is the motivating factor. Is this, this, this is the nerve of your humanity. It's found right here. And to possess it, you're going to have to learn how to be discreet. You're going to have to develop discretion. You're going to have to learn how to think. Now, when you look at the outsides of it, you look at in verse 21 and 22 and verse 24 is how it's done. And he says both positively and negatively, he says, first you have to know what to move toward. And secondly, you have to move, you have to learn what to move away from because it's not all the same. Think about it. If you were creating a salad in this magnificent salad bar, it, you can't just throw whatever you want onto the plate and have it turn out well right? You have to think how it all fits together. And that's what he's saying. There's some things that you are going to have to give yourself to the pursuit of, and then there's things that you're going to have to avoid. In other, in other words, he's cutting to the nerve of just saying, you, if you really want life, you are going to have to find out what you believe. You're going to have to find out, and then you're going to have to protect it. You're going to have to be serious about pushing in and pushing away from some stuff. Because it's going to create a sense of it. Now, I, I tried to test this this morning because over the last couple of years, I've known a lot of different Christians that have pushed away from Christianity. And this is one of the things that really a pet peeve to me. They do it by listening to other Christians that disagree with everything that they ever believed. They'll leave their families. They'll, they'll leave, some of them will leave their faith, which I think that there's actually some integrity to, but some will stay in the faith and they'll embrace homosexuality or they'll do all these different things as if somehow the Bible didn't say everything that it said all those years. And immediately they don't experience a loss of happiness. That's not what happens. In the beginning they experience this catharsis, this amazing freedom. I've never been happier, they'll tell me. I've never experienced more contentment and satisfaction than I have. The question is, will it last? According to everything that we've considered this morning, the answer is no. There's this hedonistic, narcissistic embrace of something that cannot be sustainable because now it's about clutching a life that you can't keep. It's no longer about a seed dying and falling into the ground and producing a hundredfold. It's about me. 
This is the heart of it. You see, this is why Jesus said what he said. You can't have it both ways. Get in or get out. In essence, Solomon is simply saying that in order to truly experience life and happiness, you're going to have to really be diligent to protect your heart. Sometimes I say something that I think many of you don't, it's a little bit deflected or it misleads some of you when I say, you have to learn how to fight for you. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Any of you? What do I mean when I say, you have to learn how to fight for you? What does that mean? Really, I'm, I'm, some of you are extroverts, you can answer, come on. You introverts, I'll give you a mulligan. I know I would never say a word. But any of you, what does, that, what does that mean? See, I told you, it was misleading everyone. What that means is there's times that you wake up on Tuesday morning and your baby is crying in her crib and it's 3 o'clock in the morning and there's that little impulse of self versus being a mother. But it always comes up, doesn't it? You'd be a liar if you looked in my eyes and said, I've never known that. I've never known that. I'd say, you're a liar. You're, you're just lying. Just cut that out because we're not going to be able to work together. Just like no matter how much you like your job, there's times where you deny yourself and you do it because there's a sense of transcendence or something that in your worldview that will not allow you just to lay there and allow your baby to cry. And so as much sacrifice as it requires of you, you deny yourself and you get out of bed and you go tend a baby. Your husband didn't even wake up. But you do it. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, that's God's providence in enabling you to know happiness because it makes you deny yourself. It makes you put aside self. Ever so briefly, but you see, that's a conflict that nobody can have with you. That's, that's something that, that, that conversation, that fight, unless you're fighting for you, you will lose. And to come in and have a counselor or a pastor or a good Christian friend pull you out of the mud hole when you will not fight those fights is a complete waste of time. None of us are that good. We can help you if you're fighting, but we can't fight for you. That's what I mean. It's so intensely personal, this path we walk as Christians. And it's so intensely personal because God knows you better than you know yourself. And he's creating the circumstances that are perfect for you to know what life and happiness truly is. And you cannot have it by holding on to your life. This always reminds me of what, and with this all, I'll be done. It always reminds me of that brilliant saying that Jonathan Edwards came up with, and it's kind of like this. It's not exactly like this, but it's close enough to where I can give it, him the credit. He, he said, the pursuit of the world and the pursuit of God are like two pillars that are set six inches further apart than any man can possibly reach. And the having of the one will always, always necessitate the forsaking of the other. You can't hold them at the same time. That's John 12 and verse 25. 
That's the paradox of happiness. All right, let me take a couple of questions and I'll be done. What is the relationship between synthetic happiness and joy? I think there's joy in both of them. That's why they call them happiness. I think there's a sense of genuine, legitimate fulfillment that can come from you engaging in things because it was simply the right thing to do, even if it didn't work out. There's many of you that have done things relationally and it didn't work out. There's many of you that have done things vocationally, educationally, and they didn't work out. That didn't mean they were wrong, nor did it mean you didn't experience joy. Sometimes those are the only experiences that God can use to force you to realize it's His world and you'll experience joy on His terms, not your own. Next question. How can we carefully work to give up our freedom without finding ourselves simply settling? Boy, that is a profound question. If you wrote it, don't tell me who you are because my expe expectations for you will keep going up. <laughs> that, that's a profound question. Um, a voluntary loss of freedom comes moment by moment in your engagement with other people. Think of Jesus' ministry. I love to. That sounds really good coming out of pastor's mouth, doesn't it? <laughs> but when you look at it, it's very different than most of you have realized. You look in John 3 and you have this cowardly Pharisee who's probably the preeminent teacher in Israel come to Jesus under the cover of night because he didn't want anybody to know. And then in chapter 4, you have Jesus sitting at this dusty well in Samaria at the heat of the day, and a Samaritan woman is talking to him. What's happening? See, in John 5, in verse 19, he says this. He says, even the Son of Man can do nothing on his own initiative. All I can do is what I see the Father already doing. In verse 30, he essentially says the same thing of John 5. And what I think he's saying is that Jesus became a student of providence, circumstance. And whatever he found himself in, he stooped to serve. And by doing that, there was a voluntary loss of freedom. Whether it was, see, we, we think he just has bolts coming out of his finger and he's healing the lepers and the, the people with the crippled legs and the blind and the, even the dead. But he was ministering to real circumstance. And so as we learn, this is what we teach here at L2 is mission. As we learn how to respond to providence in our lives, we're expecting and anticipating the Holy Spirit to attend with power our responsibility in those moments. That's loss of freedom. And as you do that, you'll find yourself. You'll lose yourself and find yourself at exactly the same time. That's what he's saying. And so is there joy in that? Absolutely there's joy in that. It is, is it settling? You might say so. It's settling in the sense that you're giving up the pursuit of yourself for the interest of another human being. Last question. Thank you. Okay. All right, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take communion and finish our service. Um, let me tell you, last week, as, when James was preaching, I stayed home to watch the, the stream. Your singing has so radically improved. <laughs> I meant that as a compliment, okay? <laughs> It has radically improved. And 
for some of you, I, I, I notice you sing really well. But for some of you, your singing's improved because you don't sing well, like me. But I can hear you, and it's still beautiful. It means something. For you to say, I, I'm going to put aside my own humiliation just for a few moments to worship God. And I'm going to let it hang out. And if you don't like it, you're going to have to deal with it. Because that's what we're asking you to do. And it's truly remarkable to hear it. Hear it in this room as well as online. So let's pray. Father, I would ask that perhaps even the complexity of this sermon wouldn't be lost in just the simplicity of our approach to Sunday mornings where we want we love to come into a place and we like to hear the things that we already know. They kind of affirm us. They kind of solidify the foundation underneath our feet. But sometimes we're the most impacted when we hear something from an entirely different perspective. And Father, I, I know one thing that's true of every single human being that's in this room or watching online is that we want to be happy. We want to know contentment and satisfaction and peace. And what this is doing is helping us see what you've told us in relation to what now humanity is beginning to discover. And I am unbelievably encouraged as a Christian pastor, as a man who, by your grace, has come to know a Savior, by your grace has allowed a Holy Spirit into my life to help me to know the truth and the truth to set me free. Help us to worship you as people that are remarkably privileged. No matter what amount of natural happiness we know, help our synthetic happiness to be through the roof. Bless us in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find audio of the series and other series alongside study questions and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions, send an email to feedback at l2today.com. 